Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Indian Ocean World Podcast. I am your host, Archishman Chowdhury, a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Center, McGill University. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing to you Professor Ling Chung, an Associate Professor of History at the Boston College, the United States of America. Professor Ling Chung studied history, philosophy, and literature at the Peking University in Beijing. She received her doctorate in history from the University of Cambridge in 2009, where she specialized on the economic and environmental history of medieval North China. Professor Ling Cheng has worked as a lecturer and a postdoctoral researcher at various educational institutions. She has taught at the Newcastle University in the UK from 2008 to 2009. She has worked as a postdoctoral researcher at the Harvard University from 2009 to 2011 and at the Yale University from 2011 to 2012. Professor Ling Cheng's latest publication entitled The River, the Plain, and the State, an Environmental Drama in Northern Song, China, 1048 to 1128, was published by the Cambridge University Press in 2016 and was the recipient of the 2017 George Perkins Marsh Prize for the best book in environmental history, which is awarded by the American Society for Environmental History. Currently, she's engaged in two research projects entitled North China During the Medieval Economic Revolution and China's Sorrow or the Yellow River's Sorrow, Environmental Biographies of a river community. Professor Ling Cheng also serves as an associate researcher at the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, where she organizes research seminars and talks on the environment in Asia. She is also a series co-editor for the book series Studies in Environment and History, published by the Cambridge University Press. Today, Professor Ling Cheng will tell us about a climatic anomaly that had struck northern China in the 11th century and had serious long-term consequences. Without much further ado, Professor Ling Cheng, welcome to our show. Good morning, Achisman. Thank you for having us and thank you for the generous introduction. Thank you, Professor Cheng, for being here. Uh, I will start off with a general query, as I usually do. What triggered your interest in researching the environmental landscape of northern China, especially the province of Hebei, which features so largely in your book? Like, did it uh, originate from any of the contemporary observations of the region uh, by the People's Republic of China after it uh, was formed in 1950? Or was it something that you arrived through your years of training as an historian of Northern China? 
This is a really fantastic question. I wish I got chance to talk about it. Actually, in the process of writing the book,、um, it's important. And I think, if I if I may, I would like to actually go back to my younger ages when I just left China. No, left my hometown in southeast China for the first time, and it took a twenty four hours train, <laughs> long ride, all the way north to Beijing for the first time to leave home for so long. You know, to attend college. So I remember that was the first time I got a a、um, visceral kind of first person experience of North China, which I knew nothing about in the past. I recall when my train crossed the bridge over Yellow River, I thought about. Wow, this is a North China. The land, the water, everything looks so different from South China. I recall vividly sitting in a train. I asked my father the question, "Why North China looked so brown, so desolate? There were no trees. The villages and the towns look rather shabby." And you know,、um, the the. The reason I ask questions like this,、um, partly because is partly because as a native from southeast part of China, the quite affluent Lower Yangtze Delta region, I inherited, I suppose, I was socialized in such a kind of a Lower Yangtze Delta regional chauvinism. We thought we were the best part of China. We were the wealthiest. We were the most educated. Our Local in natural environment was the most beautiful, right?、Um, so, so, so that's why I think that triggered me as a young student to ask what happened to North China, why it is a, a looks so, so 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 different from my hometown area. What happened to it? Where were the trees, right? Where did they? Go. So that was the moment I think laid the foundation for you know the next twenty years of my academic career. The question to ask about the regional differences inside China: what made the regional differences? Was it a natural process or something happened? So as I entered my college to study.、Um, As、uh, you know, more and more courses on、um, medieval Chinese history, I began to、uh, be educated with this, these thesis,、um, intellectual movement, which is,、um, today we call the Tangsong transition. This one hypothesis or thesis associated with the middle period of China, and then that thesis told us, well, that hypothesis told us, during the Tang and Song period, during the centuries between the seventh century and all the way to thirteenth century, China went through this enormous economic revolution, revolutionary period. Chinese economy boomed. Chinese population exploded. Chinese technology, institution, Chinese culture, in terms of literacy for ordinary people, mass education. Everything looks so great. Transportation. Everything looks so wonderful, and yet. We don't read enough in existing scholarship what happened in North China. All the progress, all those development I just briefly mentioned, seems to be associated with south part of China, especially the Lower Yangtze River Valley, where I came from. 
right? So this triggered me again to couple with my previous, you know, not um, kind of expression. So my question was, what happened during the economic revolutionary period? Look, it looked like North China lagged behind. And yet at the same time, South China started to take off. So is there something interesting here? Can I ask a research question about it? So as I went into the research, you know, get into deeper, deeper into my graduate study, when I got to Cambridge, I started to seriously take up this question. And um, I dedicated, I decided to dedicate myself to study North China in order to understand, in order to ask whether or not North China actually participate in a nationwide or let's say empire-wide economic revolution, I really need to take North China seriously. So when I got into this research, you know, the interesting thing is the more I looked into economic issue, the more actually I encountered environmental issues. There were all kind of a natural disaster or human caused disasters or yellow rivers of flooding. The government and local people did not know how to cope with the repetitive, the, the frequent, very intense disasters, including yellow rivers, course shifts and floods. So all these are three things, right? <laughs> First impression, the question about Thompson transition economic progress, and then my notice of uh, intensified disasters. All these things got together to produce the kind of a research I presented to you. So it's kind of a long story, isn't it? Great, thank you, Professor Cheng. Um... I'm just going to stay on with this uh, question of environmental disasters, which were coupled with economic uh, disturbances or difficulties. Mm -hmm. My first question to you in this regard would be, uh, could you tell us a bit more about the sources that were mm -hmm. produced during the Song period and also after the Song period that helped uh, researchers study uh, such environmental anomalies or uh, state-created environmental anomalies, because you have pointed out that there were clearly two different uh, thought processes. For instance, the Song Court and the Emperor interpreted environmental anomalies as spectrogenic events. These were punishments from the heaven because of human misconduct, while there were also uh, serious observers of rivers who would point out that, you know, uh, it's basically uh, the riverbeds that are getting sedimented. And as a result of which you get floods every year after year. What is your uh, take on that? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so let me go to your question about sources first. Um, I think for whoever, um, anyone who study environmental issues, we must go interdisciplinary. We must incorporate a wide variety of sources. So um, for me personally, um, I think there are two strands of sources I utilize in order to study this middle period um, environmental history. One, I would say, um, how to utilize existing primary sources, historical sources in uh, kind of a creative ways. So let's face it, when we talk about middle period of China during the centuries that I study, when we look at the primary sources, most of the historical material left behind were created by social elites, 
the educated man who served in the government, who became local gentlemen, who gained prominent positions in their local society. They had wealth, they had political power, they had opportunity, they had the right, and of course the privilege to learn how to write. It was those men who produced primary sources for us, right? Most of primary sources were left behind in that way. So, um, so the sources in the sense of very highly selective, very biased in terms of the content. They reflect the preference, reflect the desire of elite men of the time. This is a note. This this is why. Uh, when we look at our historical historiography today, majority of the scholarship today, as we can see, they study, you know, um, human intellectual history, human politics, um, elite men, their life, how their life and their social life looked like. There were less sources um, we can find that are uh, that address environmental issues directly. There are very, very few this kind of source materials. So, but on the other hand, there is a advantage about the time period that I study and the kind of a material that we are dealing with. That is those social elites, those privileged educated men in the time period that I study, they were um, curious about all kinds of things. There was a mass. Uh, uh, there was a series of growth in terms of a mass education, in terms of a literacy of ordinary people. Given that kind of social intellectual uh, background, we notice a lot of even elitist men, even though they were interested in politics, in gaining power, in gaining social pr prestige, they were curious about what, about all kinds of things happening around them. They would go out to write about gardens, write about trees, write about rivers when they travel around China between South China and North China they would document the travel experiences they experience that they they, they, they they went through so in that circumstances the several centuries that I dealt with in my history in in my research we witness a um, um how do you say unprecedented amount of material that those social elites, those educated men, documented, unprecedented, um, unorthodox materials from which we may have the chance to extract environmental data. For instance, some, some person, some men would talk about a traveling on a boat, cross a river, and accidentally mention a flood, accidentally and accidentally mentioned the inconvenience an environmental disaster actually caused to the social life. When we look into um, one particular genre of material called epitaph, basically the um, famous important men who died and uh, 
the family member invited some um, social uh, local gentleman or high-ranked official to write a epitaph, a um, to document um, the biography of the deceased family member. So in those kind of materials, we would accidentally, you know, discover the materials such as, oh, this person served in as a local official in this one town, and all he organized local people in terms of uh, battling floods in the local area. So I would say most of those people back then, they perhaps did not intend right, intentionally try to record environmental events, environmental information for us to study. But nevertheless, they were curious, they were, they observed what happened around, around them with uh, earnestness. So they document all these information for people like me. So I would go into these old material, not necessarily newly discovered material. They're pretty old, they're already there. They've been used by two generations, three generations historian already. But I would go into the material with a different eye. I was looking at a sand, I was looking at a fish, I was looking at uh, um, um, forests. So those old materials supply new information in environmental terms. But then how to utilize them in, the, in my kind of research that requires a little bit more modern um, interdisciplinary kind of a, a perspective. That is, I spend quite a bit of time to educate myself. Um, and I can't say this confidently, how well I educated myself because I just simply went into the fields such as geology, such as ecology, such as hydrology, climate science, just try to learn a little bit what happened there in those disciplines and how in general sense scientists pursue their studies what are their criteria what kind of things do they they look for so um, I spent several years um, looking into natural science quite a lot in order to gain certain you know um, to some level scientific literacy and also my to myself confidence to use contemporary scientific research to reflect back upon my historical data, try to help me to visualize, to imagine what kind of experience medieval Chinese people actually went through. So the reverberation between historical material and a contemporary scientific data. Um, this kind of a process for me is really supplies the real resource and energy for studying um, the environmental history of Northern Song China as you read here. Thank you, Professor Cheng. I will now turn to the main event in the environmental mm -hmm. drama that you have described the tragedy of 1048 when the Yellow River moves to northern China and devastates the Hebei province. You have pointed out what kind of an impact this disaster had. Of course, you argue that this was a state-created disaster of a long process, a product of a long process when the state prioritized the south, which was the seat of the empire, against the north. Uh, but what I wonder is, uh, you point out 
very graphically the impact, the immediate impact of this tragedy that, you know, three seasons of crops are destroyed, survivors either migrate to urban areas or they turn to social banditry. But you also point out that this hydraulic pressure, the state-created hydraulic pressure on Song China, northern Song China, had been going on for quite some time. And there were also earlier floods that might not have been recorded. So I wonder if the sources that you described shortly before allow us to sort of, you know, uh, have a... Mm, have an opinion on whether or not this was expected or, you know, whether or not this could have been prophesied by, uh, by, by people or the rural communities who live near the river. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the question. This is a very thoughtful question. And I think it's a huge question. Actually, it's a pretty hard to, uh, to answer. Um, let me try in this way. I think there are two issues related to your question. One is about how contemporary people living in 10th through 12th century, especially those people in North China, including of uh, emperors, high-ranked officials, regional officials, local people, how did they know? What did they know? How did they know? Could they foresee? Could they anticipate? Could they uh, Could they prepare? Right for um, um, the devastating disaster or multiple disasters. So this is one issue in regard to people's knowledge. And I think to this issue, I would say there was actually very few, in, uh, there was a, quite a little information, um, only a little information for people to really know about what was about to come. So, um, let me begin with uh, ordinary people, local people living in Hebei on the north side of the Yellow River. For centuries, they did not really experience Yellow River. They did not experience a flooding. They perhaps read about the Yellow River. They perhaps read about um, it in the literary way, in the kind of poetic or through legends. So, um, most of them had no um, mundane physical experience with the river. So in this sense, I, I would assume they knew quite little about the river and certainly how to cope with the river's monstrous you know, flood. But in terms of um, um, high-ranked officials, the government, they perhaps knew more. They had more, uh, they've seen documents from previous centuries and they've learned from previous dynasties, uh, water managing institutions, they were more prepared. And yet, and yet people living that time, even at the level of the imperial government, um, they had a no um, large scope knowledge of of the Yellow River as an entire watershed, entire water, uh, Yellow River's valley from the rivers that began into the river's end. They had to know this comprehensive, holistic view of the uh, topography of North China, how the river winds from the, um, the plateau of uh, Tibetan and Qinghai all the way to the plateau on um, in the middle reach of the Yellow River on, uh, on the border between Inner Mongolia, today's Inner Mongolia and uh, um, 
the lowest plateau. They had no idea how the river actually descend in terms of taking the uh, natural uh, gradients from the higher level to the low lying plain of the North China, um, North China plain. So they did not have the holistic, comprehensive, large scope knowledge about the topography, about the Yellow River's hydrology, uh, hydrology. So with the lack of uh, such information, whatever knowledge they had was uh, quite fragmentary, associated with a certain part of the river. So we are talking about, um, in a sense, unequal, uneven knowledge held by the imperial state. They knew something, but they didn't know everything else. So when they got into the river management of flood management in the 11th century, they were good at coping with a certain localized problems, but it was the entire river systems uh, disorder that caused huge catastrophic disaster that we saw, right, in this, uh, we see in this period. And a second, second thing is uh, related to your question. You, I think, I sense you were asking about long-term long-term, uh, the long-term historical and environmental trends that eventually led to this catastrophe in 1048. And you are quite right. The Yellow River's flooding has been going on for a long time. It didn't just happen once and all of a sudden shift the river's body to the north. There were all these um, um, the slow, gradual in, um, if we use uh, um, a Bordellian concept or lingerie, this kind of uh, uh, um, building up tendency, that's all together, different kind of tendencies, and they work together in concert to lead to the catastrophe in 1048. Let me just name a few of these tendencies, uh, slow, gradual. One thing is climate change. And uh, in my book, I did not go into climate change sufficiently enough, but I think for the future study, we need to incorporate more historical climate. So if we look at a larger trend, that was the time, that those centuries were the time period. China was situated in the middle of a so-called medieval warm period. So we were looking at this warm period, which led to, um, uh, more humidity and less aridity and um, um, and also um, uh, higher temperatures. So the, the combination of the humidity and a warmer temperature actually helped the boom, the development of agriculture, large scale agricultural movement, settlements, colonization of Chinese farmers across entire North China. But this humidity plus a warm temperature was not constant. Actually during the 9th century, 10th century, 11th century, we began to see upheaval. So we began to see fluctuation in terms of a short time period of weather patterns. So that those fluctuation in terms of short term weather pattern actually led to um, short term acute disasters from different spots of North China. So we're looking at large scale climate change, plus 
frequent small scale small disasters that led to the disturbance of the entire North China the environmental system. I briefly mentioned agricultural settlement. So we were talking about, um, we are looking at the several centuries before 11th century, before 1048, during the Tang Dynasty, during the early Song Dynasty, we began to see the settlement, uh, colonization, settlement, migration of farmers into certain spots that we today would use the concept ecotome. Ecotome, these regions, they were ecological fragile, right? They could switch between being, uh, uh, you know, the animal husbandry, grassland, and sometimes they will be swim back to become agricultural land full of crops. So the several centuries we're talking about before 1048 was the, 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 the period massive agricultural practice, um, the transformation of the landscape, the depletion of a trees and a massive planting of a crops in north part of the China, which actually contributed to long-term soil erosion, deforestation, soil erosion, and um, and also the increasing increase of, um, of uh, sediments in the Yellow River. So these large scale centuries long transformation, they had to accumulate to a certain level. Eventually in the 10th century, we began to see, wow, okay, the soil erosion deforestation led to all this ascent being transported by the river, from the river's upper upper middle reaches all the way to the river's lower reaches, accumulated there, which pushed up the body of the entire river, and then pushed the river towards its both towards the both sides. That was how the river disaster happened, right? But without addressing the long term um, economic. Uh, the product, the mode of production, and uh, the climate change, the landscape transformation, and long-term environmental degradation in terms of the earth of the um, you know um, of that part of China, of north part of China, we would not be able to understand this momentary disaster in 1048. So my point is, if we look into the long-term historical trend, several centuries before 1048, we would understand understand, okay, there's so many different factors. They interplay with each other. And when we look, when we finally moved into 11th, 10th, 11th century, we start to see the, the, the factor of uh, imperial state, the political strategic consideration, which as you correctly notice from the book, um, which prioritizes the southern part of the river and um, 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 treating the northern part of the river as a strategic, um, political, inferior, secondary periphery, or let's say environmental, ecological periphery, right? So all these different factors had to work in concert in order to produce this one disaster. So I, I think the interesting thing um, from studying to from this study is I got to see um, how different scales in terms of spatial scales and in terms of a temporal scales, how different scales have to work together in order just to create one event. So that one event of 1048 is a truly an embodiment 
a truly a result of multiple actors, multiple factors, how they cross the span of hundreds of years to get together. So that is how history happened, I suppose, right? I mean, yes, of course. Um, well, I will continue with the same train of thought mm -hmm. um, on the long-term impact of 2048. But now let me try and ask you a bit, uh, let me try and ask you a few questions on what happens in and after the period when the river moves to Northern mm -hmm. China in 1048. You point out that the river occupies Hebei province for a period of 80 years until it moves uh, south again in 1128. Mm -hmm. And during this 80 odd year period or so, the river destroys all the local water channels of Hebei, which mm -hmm. uh, usually lead to heavy deposits of silt. And these are often eroded within two seasons. So that means farmers cannot plant crops on the same site. And they often have to practice what is what you have called uh, some kind of a shifting cultivation. And on top of that, mm -hmm. they have to pay taxes, uh, which for which often they would have to buy uh, different kinds of wood and vegetative uh, stuff from merchants. So all of this. My understanding of the event is all of this had drastically reduced food security in the region of Hebei and, well, in northern China. What kind of uh, complaints or what kind of impact did this have in the long run? Do we hear more about famine or associated phenomena such as bondage and migration caused by famine or lack of food security from the region? Or is it like, you know, after uh, the destruction of the rural economy of Hebei by the Yellow River, uh, in, and so in order to uh, provide enough food for the, uh, for the rural population, did this lead to increased levels of uh, food production in the commercially mm -hmm. viable mm -hmm. South? And mm -hmm. if this at all happened, what kind of an impact did this have on the socio-political and environmental picture uh, of, the, of the South, which was the seat of the empire? Mm -hmm. Thank you. This is an excellent question and there's just so much going on here. So um, let me um, divide your question into two parts. Again, the first part is about the immediate, um, the negative impacts, the social human tolls, right? And then on the other is the long-term large scope impact on the society, on the economy, on the entire empire, even in a sense, strangely, as you rightly pointed out, the potentially the positive impact on the economy for the entire empire. So the first part, the negative impact, so, yeah, um, you made it. You made it uh, uh, very clear here. We are talking about instant um, impact of the flooding um, from 1048. But let's clarify here: Yellow River did not just flood once; did not just change a course once. Actually, before 1048, there were disasters, flooding almost every year. After 1048, even though the river crashed northward into Hebei, it did not come down. It continued to pr produce, invoke all 
all kinds of disaster almost every year, if not several times, several different locations every single year. So the disaster, the disastrous pattern continues. So when we talk about negative impacts in terms of a social, economic, um, human tolls, we must recognize the repetitive pattern of the river disaster. That basically land um, no interval, no time period for resting, for rebouncing back, for resilience, for restoring human population or human economy. So we are literally talking about farmers whose farms were destroyed, houses were completely damaged by the flooding. And if they were given enough time, say 10 years or 20 years, the farmers could come back and re rebuild the farm, rebuild their houses and rebuild their economic life. But because of the frequency and unpredictable, unpredictable um, nature of the river disaster, Hebei's, Hebei's peasants, Hebei's even citizen, you know, um, um, residents of urban areas, they could not re return home and they could not easily restore their original life. So in this sense, we began over time to see um, short-term human tolls, on top of a long-term, um, multi-layered, repeated human tolls. For instance, let me just give you some um, 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 example here. So 1048, um, about 1 million people from Hebei um, were either killed or displaced from their hometown area. So those river refugees had to pack up if they had any kind of property left with them, they will pack up and start to move away from North China all the way across the Yellow River to south part of China, just to look for food, to look for security. So, but a, a few years later, when disasters start to recede a little bit, these people began to move back. Only a few years, the river basic cause of floods again. So the same people who were the disaster a refugee from the previous disaster have to pack up and leave again. So when such kind of things happen again and again, we began to see the loss of Hebei population. Many refugees, they stop moving back to Hebei. They resettle in Henan. They resettle in province called Shandong to the east. They even travel further south to other parts of China, southern part of China, which was more mountainous. A lot of them started began to hide in high mountains or in the marshlands, in those um, um, marginal space where empire, the um, imperial state, could hardly reach. So those people became more kind of anarchist outlaw bandits. So this time period was was a very interesting time period that farmers turned into bandits because of repeated disasters in North China. Um, also, there are farmers, uh, peasants, and um, and also residents of a town townships or or or, or 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 cities. They actually travel northward 
across the um, the frontier river to get into the territory of the Liao dynasty, which was the um, arch enemy of the Song dynasty. So the refugees would risk their life to cross the border in order to pursue security. So it was a very, very interesting um, experience. So over time, we began to see um, this mass migration, mass loss of human lives, and Hebei's um, uh, population dwindled rapidly, and food security is a really, really serious. The government set up uh, regulations, for instance, um, um, uh, how to how, how much food they would distribute to give as a, re a disaster relief to the refugees. So the government would regulate every day how much food, how much grain in these circumstances, mainly that means the millet, how much, how much, um, what are the quantity of a millet should be given to every adult, how much grain should be given to every child. But a case, from case to case, we began to read widespread hunger and a famine. And even the government, both from the central government and to the regional local governments, we began to see enormous historical sources complaining about we ran out of food our granary were depleted. We couldn't feed all these disaster refugees. What are we going to do? So some of the refugees were basically throw themselves onto the streets to sell themselves to rich people. And even government would encourage rich families, rich people to adopt, quote, quote, adopt the refugees as their servants, as their maid. So this is the bondage issue we you talked about, right? And also in certain circumstances, the government would um, confiscate, you know, draft men, of course, here, men refugees into the army and use the military granary, right, military rationing to support at least a certain part of the male population because a male population, male body was still deemed useful for their labor. However, this created another problem. Over time, even military supply ran out. The government was unable to sustainably feed this, this huge amount of a military population. So more and more military soldiers would run away from the government. So imagine this, military soldiers ran away from government with weapons with them. They would roam around the, the vast land of North China. They would pair up, start to ally with the local bandits. They joined the bandits to form large group of rebels. And then they aim to cause huge social changes, political changes to bring down the government. Large scale rebellion started to take place in the later part of the 11th century. We read about this all the time. So we are literally talking about how the ecological environmental disaster led to the overall bankruptcy of a North China region, such as Hebei. The bankruptcy of the local society, of the local economy, the bankruptcy, even the moral economy, in historical time like this, we're talking about the moral economy worked out as strong social ties among different social groups. Rich people supply charity, right? Supply food, 
uh, money to poor people. Poor people guaranteed themselves to settle down in the local level to help provide security. We are talking about certain kind of a moral economy which were completely broken down. Both poor people and even at the end, rich people were so afraid of living in North China, Hebei Park, Hebei region. They pack up to leave again because they realized there were no social bonds existing in their hometown anymore. So all these things, you know, negative things, and then let's translate quickly to the positive impact that you suggested here. Then what did the state do? Here we began to see um, uh, this amazing, um, in a sense, the historical phenomenon that Northern Song Imperial government, it began to take on this active inten uh, in interventionist kind of a, uh, a approach to deal with environmental, social, economic um, hardship on the ground. So the state inserted itself to cope with everything. How did it do it? One way the state did it, uh, did it was to um, recruit, to purchase, to mobilize the transportation of a large scope, a large quantity of a raw material, basic supply such as food such as a vegetative material from different parts of the China, which were not um, uh, devastated by the disaster. The, this kind of material being, um, you know, mo uh, maneuvered, mo mobilized to, 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 to transport across more than a thousand miles to North China in order to feed the refugee, in order to feed the military, in order to supply the um, the hydraulic work to battle the, the monstrous Yellow River, right? So the state functioned as the mastermind, the, 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 the organizer, and also the large buyer of goods from South China, right? And so this is a very interesting phenomenon. That means there was a huge, we saw the emergence of a huge market, a consumer base in North China who were hunger for basic things, basic cheap things like food. And the government stepped in to function as the um, buyer and uh, transportation manager. So this, I really believe, and your observation is right, that this pumped up, this supplies economic incentive to the well-to-do regions in South China to drive up the prices for grain and for other basic supplies. And that will end up leading to intensified uh, farming practice, um, agricultural um, technological innovations in South China. The innovations of a shipping technology, especially uh, water-based, um, inland water-based shipping. All the, the consumption, the demand, supplied the drive for the economic growth in South China. So this is a very bizarre thing, right? <laughs> we are talking about disaster, but the disaster became incentive for production. So in this sense, I think we are truly not just talking about um, um, the economic growth in terms of um, 
the innocent, pure microeconomic uh, um, uh, driven economic growth. So we're talking about a certain kind of a political economy. The political economy was determined here by the imperial state's sense of a crisis, the, 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 the sense of a survival, the sense of um, how to hold these drastically different regions across the empire, hold them together as a whole thing. So, um, so I think this observation would, uh, um, in some way, um, um, I think will, will beautifully actually um, um, help us to think about the complexity of a so-called Tang Song transition, the thesis, the hypothesis that the most of the scholars and historians of my period are, are thinking with, right? How do we cope with this idea, this time period in Thai China have gone, have launched its um, you know, early modern path, right? We began to see a um, extremely uh, prosperous um, commercial economy, but at the same time, actually this, this prosperous commercial economy was founded by the fact of the socioeconomic downfall of North China and the imperial state's insistence of not, not letting it completely falling to um, fundamental damage, right? So it's a very interesting way of thinking about the empire-wide and large scope um, historical development. So I wish I would, uh, well, yeah, but in fact, I'm, I'm currently dedicating more energy and more time to study these issues. So I'm very glad you brought, brought up the, you brought up this issue. Thank you, Professor Cheng. I'm fascinated by your work. And let me now ask you a few more questions. I'll ask two more, I promise. Um, the first one is sort of about the, you know, the long-term impact again, but not on river hydraulics or not on economic production. But I just wonder, uh, you point out in your work that often hydraulic decision-making at the Chinese courts was a complicated process because it involved the emperor, the emperor's court, and often also the district officials or commissioners of the provinces where these works were to be undertaken. And um, you also highlighted that often district officials would complain to the emperor that uh, doing hydraulic works without taking into account uh, the local knowledge or the local character of the terrain of the environment could lead to serious devastating consequences as as it were with the with the 1048 disaster mm -hmm. but you also point out that the song model of hydraulics despite its failure was sought to be emulated by the succeeding empires and not just any ordinary empire but the big empires like the uh, Ming empire and also the Manchu empire later so my question is can you tell our listeners very briefly about why even succeeding empires would follow a certain model that mm -hmm. they were aware did not always have the positive impact that it intended? Right, right. Um, I'll be very brief. I, if very brief, just one sentence, I would say they had no choice. 
<laughs> Let me elaborate on this a little bit, just just a little bit. They had the later dynasty. They had no choice, for two reasons. So one thing is, um, Song Dynasty, Northern Song Dynasty. We're talking here was truly the first time period we saw the um, the uh, the the formation, the development of um, multifaceted, systematic knowledge over hydraulic. Hydraulics, especially in relation to Yellow River. If we look at the previous time period, the time period prior to Northern Song, well, partly we would say um, Yellow River was a quite friendly, quite calm for many for many centuries between the first one and the uh, all the way to the ninth century, about nine centuries uh, before Northern Song time period. Um, the river was calm. So there wasn't a much accumulated, large scope, systematic, you know, state-driven uh, river knowledge back then. River flooded, but it was they, it, they were more like a local issue, as you mentioned. Local officials had dealt with them. It was really the Song period. The river became such a national security level of an issue, um, implicating the, in, the the survival, well-being of the entire state. So then we began to see this a multi-layer hierarchical knowledge formations, which also were accompanied by the um, um, the negotiation conflicts and a compromise among all these different um, uh, institutions and uh, social groups. So yeah, so it, it was a time knowledge was gained and the knowledge was transformed into an entire system you know, that ranged between science, uh, finance, politics, military strategies, how to use a labor, how to, you know, uh, uh, innovate um, a civil uh, construction. So it was a good model. It was a really um, uh, fruitful and kind of knowledge system. So uh, later dynasties inherited So they had nothing else to inherit in a sense. I think they had no choice. But on the other hand, very briefly, they had no choice in the sense the river disasters in the next uh, in the centuries after the 11th century, basically throughout the second millennia, Yellow River's disasters were so overwhelming that the, all governments of a various dynasty, they all tried very hard to control the river. And they all some in some sense failed because they were unable permanently eliminate, eliminate the disaster of the Yellow River. So the Northern Song Dynasty practice failed again and again, but in a sense, it wasn't that fundamental failure. It was just the same experience as a later dynasty. If in terms of uh, protecting the river, uh, to you know, preventing the river from destroying the capital of the Northern Song Dynasty and guarding the heart, the you know, the heart or and the core of the dynasty, the state was quite a successful. If we think about that particular goal, the state was a particularly uh, is a uh, actually pretty successful. So um, fundamentally, all these dynasties they came to the awareness they were unable to eliminate rivers disaster in any permanent sense. So they were all um, 
um, basically, they all learned from the Northern Song Dynasty. Basically, their task was truly to negotiate with this disastrous river and try to negotiate with their own people within their own domain to negotiate uh, between um, um, among different regions to try to balance out regional interests. So here again, right, in face of the um, conquered, <laughs> untamed river and undomesticable um, nature, the state in a sense yield toward the um, nature and start to transform the river management into a truly a political issue, how to balance interests. So this is what the later dynasty learned and they practiced as well. So I think the message is truly um, the fundamental inability of a human society, even in the form of the most organized um, uh, uh, institutions such as the imperial state as a extremely active interventionist government uh, in the form of that government, it couldn't truly manage the environmental disasters. It's humbling to talk about this. Thank you, Professor Cheng. Uh, I'm going to end today's proceedings with a final question. Um, as I read your book, I thought it sort of demonstrates how developmental projects that don't take into consideration local knowledge uh, can have serious consequences for the environment and also for the people who are supported by that environment. Um, in this respect, I wonder if you would like to reflect on how your work speaks to modern developmental policy making, for instance, uh, real estate in fragile areas like mountains or low-lying plains or even, you know, places where uh, the risks of flooding sort of multiply with deforestation and erosion of soil cover. Would you like mm -hmm. to reflect on that? Sure, of course. This is such a wonderful point. I think many of us study environmental issues. We um, we uh, began with a acute awareness of environmental problems today and the, the difficulty, complexity and the problem the problematic of our environmental manage management today. So you were perfectly right about the uh, the contrast, the conflicts between local knowledge and official knowledge, the top-down scientific large-scale um, uh, knowledge um, which was held, organized and held by um, political um, institutions and organizations such as um, the imperial state of the Northern Song. We clearly see the conflict between the two. So I think you were right. Um, and I think in terms of our modern uh, decision making, in terms of our modern uh, environmental practice, we do need to pay more attention to hear more um, the opinions of a local people, local society, many, uh, much of the local knowledge and, lo and many of the local practices um, have been wiped out completely. But if we pay attention, we perhaps will still uh, notice, um, still discover 
the existence of an old local knowledge. They, um, I think it is precious. But on the other hand, after writing this book, researching Northern Song China, I also came to the realization we should not um, um, uh, deify local knowledge. We should not romanticize um, local knowledge just as we shouldn't deify and romanticize um, organized official state-oriented knowledge. Um, because, because why, um, as many cases um, from historical period have told me, many uh, much local knowledge was formed and uh, uh, practiced out by local societies or local social groups, uh, communities who cared only about their own benefits, their own interests. So just as how the imperial state would come into the environmental world and try to advance its own interests, many local society actually actively sabotage others and neighbors by protecting and highlighting their own benefits. So let's say this this is a pretty sad and really disappointing discovery I found in my research. I really would like to say local knowledge will should cure every disease, but in reality, when what I found is under the pressure of um, you know mounting pressure uh, from um, uh, um, uh, damaging environment and also. Um, because of the heightened depletion and abuse um, of uh, resources, you know, in circumstances like this, people tend to, both at a high level and a lower level, tend to um, grapple with their own desire. And uh, sometimes that will lead to abuse and encroachment of people, um, you know, living in their neighboring areas. So how to deal with this? I, 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 I think in, um, if we talk about the implication for our modern environmental management, I think we need to uh, not, to, we need to, how to say, um, understand local knowledge, the diversity of it, respect it, but at the same time, we still need to keep learning and try to gain more large scope, comprehensive, both scientific and humanistic, social scientific knowledge of environmental systems. So both the small scale, the local, and the large scale, the interplanetary, the ecosystematic scale knowledge, we need to basically keep an eye on, keep an eye on these different scales, try to work with both instead of a, you know, zero sum, gray and black and white, try to pick one against the other. So, um, but when we talk about these issue, I think what I learned from my research is, Often we are not, we are talking about political issues here. We are talking about the infights among different human societies, human society, human groups. So we are truly talking about a environmental justice issue. So how do we um, set our eyes on to, you know, cure environmental disease, but also, you know, uh, with this uh, gaining more awareness that justice is uh, environmental justice, social justice actually as a core of dealing with any environmental issue. How can we protect our own neighborhood while acknowledging 
this could cause, you know, injustice, trigger injustice toward our neighbor. So how do we balance, um, you know, these different awareness and come up with uh, some um, compassionate and uh, um, ultimately um, 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 sorry, my mind blanks out a little bit. Uh, this last sentence, I'm just going to phrase it. How, how do we come up with uh, um, both compassionate and also um, justice uh, sensitive solutions to every issue? I, I think this is a question for all of us. Um, last message, very quickly, last message of studying, um, you know, research project like this make me feel um, um, just very sad to, to see the human arrogance here. Um, we often, you know, just like Northern Song Imperial States uh, and it, its emperors and high ranked officials, um, again, again, we see they how they, these people, uh, men and groups, they demonstrate um, this desire and a confidence that their single solution could deal with everything all at once, all together. And I think fundamentally to, um, to speak to contemporary policy um, makers to address contemporary um, environmental disasters and uh, which will lead to our future you know um, environmental future which is pretty clear we have climate change global warming all these things um, um, are happening right now but I think the fundamental issue is how we address we our human arrogance our profound sometimes I think of blind belief in our confidence, in our ability, we are able to conquer nature. But history keeps telling us, sorry, you can't. Many of your good, well-intended, good solutions, scientific solutions will end up triggering even bigger disasters. So be humble here. So I think that may help us actually to walk back from many of our previous mistakes. Thank you, Professor Ling Cheng, for what was a wonderful podcast. I have learned a lot today, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy every bit of what we have discussed. Uh, thank you once again to my colleague, René Mandeville, who works behind the scenes and helps produce these podcasts. I'm Archishman Choudhury, a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Center, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcasts. That's all we have for today. Bye-bye, take care, and stay safe, everyone. The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 